Welcome to another edition of the Broadcorp Report. I'm Michael Broadcorp here with my co-host. Becky Allery. And another week, we don't have Todd Walker. Unfortunately, Todd, we're so sad. We are sad. Todd is a great moderator. He is traveling the world uh, for his work, and so we're going to have him in studio next, next week. We're also, if you're listening to this, we're also trying out some new podcast equipment today. So if it sounds better or worse based on previous shows, please let us know. We're going to try out some new things today, including we're going to have our first interview today. Annette Meek served as Deputy Chief of Staff for Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich, was appointed to the Met Council by Governor Pawlenty in 2003, where she served two terms, and was Tom Emmer's running mate and MNGOP-endorsed Lieutenant Governor candidate in 2010. She has worked for the conservative think tank Center for the American Experiment, served as vice chair of the MNGOP, and is the founder and CEO of Freedom Foundation of Minnesota. Her Republican conservative credentials are strong, yet today we are here to to continue our conversation from last week of why the DFL keeps winning and discuss her recent op-ed, Why Minnesota Republicans Can't Win the Big Ones. Michael and I have both worked with her over the years. She is a mentor and friend to us both, and we're officially excited to welcome our first guest, Annette Meeks. Annette, thank you so much for joining us today. You are our first guest of uh, the podcast, and so it's so nice to have you here. Well, it is beyond my honor to be your first guest because I'm like your number one fangirl, so uh, thank you for having me. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on. Um, one of the things that you know, Becky and I have been talking about since we, which we launched this podcast was why Republicans in Minnesota uh, have such a difficult time winning statewide. You recently wrote an op-ed for the Star Tribune called Why Republicans Can't Win the Big Ones. We Need to Find Our Vision. Uh, For our listeners, uh, go through a little bit of what your op-ed talked about and kind of the overall points you wanted to make. Well, I think there's a couple reasons why. Um, I compared us to being a hapless Vikings fan, and I don't need to explain that to you, Michael. Um, You're probably one of their top fans, but (laughs) it gets a little hopeless after a while when you uh, keep uh, thinking this is the year we're going to win it all, and then election day comes and we walk away with nothing. Uh, and as former Governor Tim Pawlenty said a couple weeks ago, after 15 years of that, you have to question what you're selling and how you're marketing yourself as a political party. And I really felt uh, this last election, we had two really superior candidates, uh, one for Attorney General, uh, Jim Schultz, and one for the state auditor. Uh, and I really thought both of them were going to win. And when Election Day came around, and we not only didn't win anything statewide, but we lost our majority in the state Senate and also didn't achieve a majority in the state House, you have to look at that and say, if this isn't rock bottom for our political party, I don't know what is. And so I sat here for about a week staring at my laptop thinking, it's time to write it. It, We've got to be, if we are going to be... uh, the chief opponent of the DFL, we've got to be competitive and we're not. If we're going to be a major political party, we have to win something and we don't. And and the third thing is, uh, I think there has to be just a top to bottom assessment of why this this doesn't happen. And we're not doing that. So I thought I would start the conversation uh, with this op-ed. It was really a hard op-ed to write because I love the Republican Party so very much. And I believe very much in 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 our mission and our our vision 
Uh, but for some reason, we're not catching on in Minnesota. We're going further behind. And so this was really written out of love. Your op-ed focused a lot on Hennepin County. Can you go through some of the analysis you did specific to Hennepin County and how Republicans have really started to fade in that in that in an area of the state that they've done well historically? Sure, I, I'd be happy to. One of the things I think that Hennepin County is so illustrative of is the DFL has figured out a winning formula. They've figured out that out of Minnesota's 87 counties, they really only need to focus on four. That's Olmstead, Rochester, St. Louis, which is the city of Duluth, and Hennepin and Ramsey County. They've done this and they've prevailed for, like I said, 16 years. Uh, but where they've really made massive inroads uh, in, in picking up, like in this case, picking up the state Senate and the state house, uh, where they actually picked up one seat, I believe it was, um, with, with how they've done this is through the suburbs. And this started back in 2018. And as Republicans, we sat here and said, well, they won the suburbs because women are, are disgusted by, uh, at that time, President Donald Trump. And so that was really suburban women. But then in 2020, uh, we went further behind in Hennepin County and uh, said, well, that's because not only are the Republican women of Hennepin County still mad at Donald Trump, but now the men are kind of tired of his antics too. Uh, so we went further behind this election. If you start looking at what we call the exurbs, um, a good example is uh, Senator Julia Coleman, who has most of Carver County in her Senate district. She only carried a Victoria and Waconia. She lost Chanhassen and Chaska in Carver County. I mean, that, that's just unthinkable. Uh, and what's happening, I believe, is an erosion of those suburban voters who aren't hearing anything from Republicans uh, that appeals to them, that solves the problems in their life. I, I always tell candidates, elections are about the future. What are you going to do to make their lives better? What are you going to do to make sure their children get a superior education? Um, and this election really boiled down to the Democrats uh, saying, we're not Republicans and they're going to restrict your right to abortion. They didn't really have to do much beyond that uh, we did all the self-inflicting of wounds ourselves. And when I say self-inflicted wounds, I mean talking about mask mandates and, and vaccine mandates, things that were yesterday's issue. Uh, we, we didn't really project in, in any type of vision for what we're going to do if given power. And if given the choice, I think most suburban voters said, well, I guess we'll go with the Democrats. Uh, and, and that's where I think our biggest problem is. Um, and why we will not do better in those suburbs uh, until we change that vision. And I also cited one thing I think that's the most shocking thing to me. If you look at Hennepin County, the only seats that we have now in the state legislature as Republicans are two state legislators and uh, two state House members in Maple Grove and the state Senator Warren Limmer out there. Uh, and now we picked up in this most recent election uh, a seat in Minnetonka. That's it four seats in all of Hennepin County. You know, Annette, you kind of hit on some of the stuff that we've been talking about over the last few episodes here about, um, you know, candidate quality and message discipline, um, you know, both which were, were lacking this last cycle on the statewide level, aside from 
um, you know, Wilson and Schultz, of course. Um, you know, talk to us a little bit. You you were formally went through the endorsement process as, as Tom Members running made in 2010. You understand that process really well. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about how that endorsement process can pick good winners with a messaging, good, strong messengers for our party that hopefully have a vision, but, you know, maybe in the last few few cycles here haven't been able to capitalize on good messengers that are able to look towards the future? Well, that, that is the million-dollar question, Becky. I mean, really, when we, we look at all that is said and done and why we keep losing, I really believe it boils down to message, and it boils down to making... One of the things I said in, in my op-ed that I wanted to make it as strong as possible is we have to stop scaring voters. And I believe without message discipline, there were things said during this last election that positively frightened voters. I don't know any other way to say it. Um, one of the things, for example, that uh, one of the candidates said was we're, we're going to uh, eliminate uh, the state income tax. But without a plan and without an explanation, that is a wild uh, statement to make. And it allowed the Democrats and every tax expert in the state to come out and attack us and say, that is an irresponsible thing to say. We would bankrupt our, our schools. We would bankrupt all the communities in greater Minnesota that rely on LGA. And you have to think through some of these things before you see them. As uh, we used to say to to my old boss, it's okay to have unuttered thoughts, um, that uh, it's okay to, to talk about ideas, uh, but campaigns are not necessarily the place to do that. And I also think that one of the lessons that we have learned painfully from Donald Trump is sometimes it's a good idea to have an agenda. It's not just okay to say, I'm for smaller government and not explain what that means to people. We need a plan. And we need a vision. And without a vision, we have candidates out there just kind of flailing in the wind. And you talked about um, a candidate uh, for attorney general. I thought he had remarkable discipline in talking about what he was going to do and what he wasn't going to do as attorney general. But he talked about the future. When I am your attorney general, I will be involved in prosecuting crime, out of control crime in the Twin Cities. Bingo. I know that by listening to him. He didn't have millions of dollars on TV. He didn't have anything. He just repeated that message over and over again. That was a well-disciplined candidate with a message. That's what we need up and down the ticket. So now while we have you here, we have one last question I want to ask you is, is after the aftermath of the 2022 elections, have Republicans sufficiently hit rock bottom enough? Uh, have they learned enough from where they're at that they have to, that they have to embrace some of the structural reforms, some of the messaging reforms? Or are Republicans going to have to go through another cycle of losing elections before they come to the realization that they need to change? Well, Michael, that is the $2 million question. I don't know the answer to that yet. I can tell you that I've heard from people all over the state. I have a stack here still of about 40 emails that I haven't gotten to uh, respond to yet uh, from random people. One is from Detroit Lakes. One is from Plymouth um, that said, thank you for saying what needed to be said. What can I do to help? And I'm really encouraged by that, but change is hard. And I don't know if this is rock bottom for the party, to be very blunt, um, because change is hard and people resist change, especially when you're wrestling control of our nominating process, essentially away from 2,000 delegates who assemble in a state convention and saying, we're going to make more people involved in this. 
make this much more of a citizen uh, initiative for all people in our party. Uh, I believe it should be a closed primary. And I believe that uh, if we had 100,000 people that got involved, think of what momentum that would put behind a campaign versus 2,000 people who cast their votes in a, a state convention. But getting those 2,000 people to agree that it's time to uh, give up that power is, is going to be very difficult. I always say our, our conventions are keep it small, control it all. And that's very hard uh, to uh, give up for a lot of people. By the way, one of the people I heard from was involved in, in the original precinct caucus versus a primary discussion back in the 50s and 60s. And he said that, and, and I think it's probably true, precinct caucuses were decided upon by the legislature because they were cheaper than putting on a regular primary. And they thought this would be a neighborly way of getting people involved in their communities. Um, and, and it would be very cheap because each community or each political party in each community would have to pay for it rather than a state run primary. Uh, so I think it's time to stop doing things on the cheap, get with at least the 20th century, maybe not the 21st, but try to drag <laughs> our party forward and look at some other ways of doing things in the future and hopefully have a, a different outcome. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Annette. I think you hit on some really great points that um, are, you know, we're going to have to discuss further. And we appreciate your expertise, all of your knowledge from over the years. Um, and I guess we'll all have to wait and see um, if this was rock bottom and if we can go up from here and learn from our mistakes. Annette, well, thank you and thank you for inviting me on. Annette, thank you so much again for joining us. And we look forward to having you on future shows, okay? Have a great day. Same to you. Well, that was a great interview with Annette Meeks, right? Absolutely. She's, you know, definitely been a mentor for me over the years. She is a strong, um, you know, strong Republican woman I've looked up to, has a strong voice, isn't afraid to ruffle feathers and really, you know, tell us what we need to hear. Uh, yeah. And, and I think it's going to be interesting to see. There's a lot of discussion this, this election cycle, a lot of postmortems about if Republicans are going to do a good job. And it was really good commentary that she wrote. It really, I think, mainstreamed the discussion. And we'll see where the party goes. You know, and I think we get a lot of, you know, people might even call us some of the armchair quarterbacks, right? You just sit here and, and spout off our thoughts. Um, I think that hopefully we can dispel that by, by our resumes and past in this. But Annette certainly can. She's, she's lived, eaten, breathed Republican politics and, uh, you know, visions and missions and, and forward thinking for the last, you know, few decades here. And so I think that, you know, she has a lot of knowledge that uh, we should all heed. Heed. It's a good word. Heed. Heated. Um, we're recording this on a Thursday, and Tuesday was the election results in Georgia. Apparently, I'm making too much background noise. Um, and so we, right? Is that what that, what that sign yeah. was? I'm making too much background <laughs> noise. So thir we're, it's Thursday, correct? Yes. Tuesday was the election results in Georgia. Correct. And long who won awaited. the race? Long awaited. The last election results of this cycle, yeah. and who won? Not Trump's guy. And it was not Herschel Walker. Correct. Herschel Walker, and let me just start from the beginning. I'm a lifelong Vikings fan. Are, are you a Vikings fan? Yeah. My husband is not. I'm a Vikings fan. My wife is a Packers fan. Oh, hey, say Packers over here too. Yes. And so Herschel Walker, when I think of Herschel Walker, I think of the, one of the worst trades in NFL history. The Vikings traded for Herschel Walker with the Dallas Cowboys uh, back in 1989, I believe. Um, but Herschel Walker has since uh, gotten into politics. As you pointed out, 
He was Trump's candidate to run for the United States Senate in Georgia. Uh, Georgia has a kind of quirky system where they have a runoff. Uh, since neither candidate got over 50% right. uh, on election day back in November, they fast forwarded to, to do a runoff a month later. And that was held on Tuesday. And Herschel Walker was not elected to the United States Senate. Yeah, you know, another blow to uh, to the candidates that President Trump has backed and, and hopefully a sign of things to come of what, you know, the American public and the voters will stand for. Georgia has gone from being a red state to now a swing state. It has transitioned. The Republican governor, Brian Kemp, um, was reelected on Election Day. But de Georgia has elected recently two Democratic United States Senators, United States Senators. And so this was a, another, I think there's a lot of similarities between Georgia and Minnesota. For example, when it comes down to one of my favorite subjects, candidate equality, <laughs> because George, uh, a lot of people thought that this would have been a winnable race for Republicans had they picked a different candidate. And that's something that I've been talking quite a bit about, we've talk, talked about on the show. Again, as you pointed out, I endorsed Governor Walls. Mm -hmm. uh, you uh, didn't. That's fine. You have to live. You have to live <laughs> with that. But the discussion is about candidate equality, and I wanted to draw attention to what the Lieutenant Governor of Georgia said. Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan said that this wasn't the right. That Herschel Walker wasn't the right brand for Republicanism, and he added, "I think Herschel Walker will probably go down as one of the worst candidates in our party's history." That is something I've said consistently about Scott Jensen and Matt Burke. And so what we have is an example of, in a number of states across the country, we have issues related to candidate quality. We had it in the United States Senate race in Georgia. We had it in the United States Senate race in Pennsylvania, Dr. Oz. Um, those are races where Republicans could have won. It's something that Mitch McConnell has spoken about, uh, the need for candidate equality. And... Joe Biden, as the Democratic president of the United States, he experienced something that hasn't happened in, I think, close to 80-some years, 88 years, which is the incumbent president did not lose any seats in the midterm election of, the, of his party. And so it is historic what happened here that Republicans blew it like they did. And so I just wanted to spend a little time talking about that and, and how it potentially relates to our further conversation in Minnesota. Yeah, you know, the difference I think that, uh, you know, again, playing my devil's advocate and again, maybe coming to, to Jensen's defense a little bit. Um, <laughs> there, I think there are stark differences here in the candidate quality issues that we have. There is, you know, Walker had two of them. He had the skeletons in his closet and the messaging issue. Um, you know, we, we didn't see much other than, you know, I mean, I guess, quote unquote, other than the fact that our Republican candidate worked for Planned Parenthood and, you know, had photos with, you know, gun control advocates, um, those kind of skeletons in the closet. Um, but when we look at the Walker thing, I mean, it's 2022. How do people not expect that these skeletons are going to come out? This isn't just you know, sent an inappropriate text message. This is domestic violence, forcing abortions, but claiming to be pro-life. I mean, this is some really, really hard, awful skeletons in Walker's background um, that were either overlooked, unmentioned, whatever the case may be. But they're going to come out. They're going to be broadcast everywhere. We saw it in and out every day, every week. Um, and yet he was still the, the nominee here. And so it's it's hard to overlook, you know, what that really did to this campaign 
And then you get into the messaging factors. I mean, I don't think he talked about furries, but I, if I remember correctly, he talked about werewolves and vampires. So, I mean, really distracting from the message at hand here. Do you think, what do you think is the, what, what's the message that Republicans, because obviously Republicans in Minnesota pick candidates different than Republican candidate, Republicans in Georgia, but there's a common link here. Is Trump the nexus point? Is is he the factor that's connecting them? Or why is it why is it that Republicans this particularly this election cycle did such a bad job picking candidates across the country? Yeah, you know, I think we're maybe a little close to actually understand the true Trump factor in this. Um, but it does seem that maybe going into the election, people still thought that Trump was gonna be, you know, the big, strong, top of the ticket Republican that was going to potentially be successful in a second run. Um, with failure after failure of, of Trump-supported candidates and of Trump himself, um, I think people are realizing, wait a minute, we can stand up to this guy. We don't have to fall in line. He's not, you know, we, we can push back a little bit. Um, and so I think that that's going to be maybe came, you know, that realization didn't come during this uh, candidate selection process. Um, but I think people really thought that Walker's, you know, Hollywood elite celebrity status was going to be enough to pull him over the finish line. And voters are, are smarter than that these days. What do you think, um, do you think Republicans are uh, introspective enough to analyze this? Do you think they'll be strong enough to, to the reforms? Do you think this will sting enough? Um, that the fact that it's, it's very likely that had they picked better candidates to run for the United States Senate, that Republicans could have potentially gained, gained control? You know, thankfully, I do think we have some vocal Republicans, whether that is McConnell or, or you know, I think the chair of the Republican Party, or like you said, the, the dep or lieutenant governor in Georgia, coming out against these Republicans, saying they were poor choices. And even, I think, you know, the media, to give them some credit, are, are obviously highlighting the poor choices there as well. I also think, you know, we can talk about the Trump factor a little bit more, but I also think there's being some, you know, people are being a little disillusioned, you know, kind of getting past the maybe the Trump factor. Um, and so, yeah, you know, I think I, I would like to think that people are introspective enough. I don't know if that's going to be people that um, necessarily are the ones who endorse our next candidate are among those. But I, I do hope that voters, delegates alike, are going to, to figure this out and, and realize what we what we did wrong this time. The tie-in between the two, and one of the last subjects we wanted to talk about was, can you be a Republican and vote for a Democrat? Because... You're, according to the people who follow you on Twitter, no. Well, yes, but let's have the discussion about that. Because the question is, so if you're, so you're down in Georgia, you obviously didn't say, I mean, aside from the football reasons to vote against Herschel Walker, you obviously raised some concerns. And I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but I am putting you on the spot. If you were in Georgia, would you have voted for Herschel Walker? Absolutely not. You would not have voted for Herschel no. Walker? No. So let's talk about, let's take, let's, let's take a little bit of the attention off me for a second, because I seem to get the heat a lot about <laughs> this right now. You consider yourself a Republican. I do. So what would you have done in Georgia? Would you have voted for the Democrat, or what would you have done? You know, I think it, it, it's tough. I think that things have really changed over the last, you know, four to six years even. I think that... To be perfectly honest, I, like I've mentioned previously, I, I spent the last decade in Republican pro politics. I used to love being able to talk about that, what I did for a living, and people were interested in, you know, liked hearing about working in Republican politics. 
now I get introduced to, you know, that this is what I do for a living. And I feel like it instantly I need to defend myself of, but I, you know, I, so I'm pro-choice. I support gay marriage. I instantly feel like I, I don't support Trump, you know, have to defend myself and differentiate between, you know, maybe two, three different types of Republicans that there are out there. So um, I think before, you know, Republicans really were focused on being limited government, um, you know, constitutional um personal responsibility party and now it's kind of become this you know trump-esque uh you know kind of scenario that we're we're stuck in that maybe a a side of the republican parties that do want to turn back the clock on women's rights and minorities rights and you know marriage gay marriage all of these kind of things and so i think you know, when you look at that and look at what some of these candidates truly are standing for, it's no longer standing just on the Republican name and the overall mantra of limited government and, you know, backing the Constitution, but they're really trying to turn back clock. And I think that that's something that we need to, to focus on, especially, again, I think I mentioned previously, you know, the younger generation, I think, really look at some of those social issues. So the question or the, to answer, you know, finally, after a long roundabout way to answer your question, I think I would have had to possibly cast my first, first real vote for a Democrat here. Because, and that is, is that a protest vote on your mind? I mean, is that, I mean, you obviously, I mean, Minnesota has a high voter participation. Mm-hmm. Most people vote in the state. Right. Is it a protest vote for you? Um, is it, what's your rash? I mean, I'll, I like to talk, I'll explain my perspective, but I'd like to hear yours a bit about, because that's a big acknowledgement on your part. Um, is it a, because you can write someone in, mm-hmm. Um, you could, you know, I know a lot of Republicans who have written their favorite Republican candidate in, um, in when there's been, uh, when they haven't liked the candidate that's on there, kind of, so they can kind of keep their slate clean of voting for Republicans. Right. Um, but it's different, um, you know, is it a protest vote if you vote for a Democrat? Or what's, what's your thought process on how you would transition from, I'm not going to leave the ballot blank. Right. I'm not going to write someone in. I'm going to vote for the Democrat? You know, I think, and again, this is, you know, specific to this example in Georgia, I think it kind of would be a protest vote, but to, to also maybe send a message that this is so far off the mark of an acceptable candidate and what voters will accept. Um, I will say that while I have not officially cast a ballot for a Democrat, I have voted for independent. I have voted for, you know, some of the minor party candidates. Um, I do think that there are, you know, different ways to throw because I don't, I I believe voting is really important. I am going to go on election day. I am going to cast my ballot. Um, But it's just really unacceptable to have a candidate that stands for the things he stands for and has done the things he's done. So you believe you can, that someone can call themselves a Republican and vote for a candidate other than a Republican on election day? Yeah, because we need to do better. At what point do you think that someone can no longer call themselves a Republican? I mean, I would say if election after election, you're, you're cast in your ballot blue, um, you know, I think that, again, I think that that would probably, you know, majority Democrat votes, you know, at some point you have to kind of flip what you stand for. But I guess it kind of comes down to the, the to the factors, you know, the issues at hand, too. I mean, where, where are you on this? Because you obviously, as we all know, endorsed and voted for Governor Walls. Correct. Um, let me just ask one last question. Someone like Arnie Carlson, mm-hmm. former governor of the state, um, was elected twice, not endorsed either time. Um, he has been someone since he left elected office. He has been someone who has 
uh, has Republican credentials. Um, he is, but he has endorsed Democratic candidates. I don't know how many Republicans he's endorsed, but I know that every election cycle, uh, Democrats like to kind of bring him out. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just trying to be factual that Arnie Carlson's political significance right now comes from the fact that when he is involved in an election cycle, it's news if he, I think it would be more newsworthy right now if he endorsed a Republican than if he necessarily supported a Democrat. I know this last election cycle, he did an interview where he said he couldn't vote for any of the Republican mm -hmm. candidates. Um, I think it's a challenge for someone like him, who he was a Republican elected governor, but I think it's important for him to disclose where he aligns politically. So when I wrote about kind of my kind of political kind of transformation or space, I thought a lot about Arnie Carlson, not because being the former deputy chair is anything like being the former governor, but I thought there was a level of transparency and expectation that people have, particularly related to Arnie Carlson. Um, and so when I wrote about it, I, as we've discussed in the podcast, I kind of consider myself politically homeless in that sense. I don't feel as comfortable inside the party. Mm -hmm. I, I think you kind of feel a little bit of that same Absolutely. way too. I've just gotten a little farther down the road because I struggle with the, pr I struggle with not voting. That's unacceptable to me. It's also not acceptable to me to write in Mickey Mouse because I don't think I'm taking the ballot seriously. Mm -hmm. um, if there was an independent, um, I would, uh, that was a credible independent, I struggle with that. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I worked on Norm Coleman's 1998 gubernatorial race. Um, I, you know, worked, at the, worked in the legislature when, when Jesse Ventura was governor. I think that there are, I think that we are fundamentally a two-party system. And so like Kane and Kodos on The Simpsons when they said, what are you going to do, waste your vote, vote for a third party? I sometimes, I do fundamentally believe that it's a two-party system. And I feel like it's my civic duty when it comes down to a ballot box that if I can't, if, if I can't support the Republican, I'm going to support the Democrat. I think it's my civic duty. Now, if I do that consistently for the next 10 years... Um, and I'm only voting for Democratic candidates, and I'm only voting, or I'm only endorsing candidates on the on the Democratic side. Then it's fair to say if I'm still a Democrat, if I'm still mm -hmm. a Republican or not. But the, the the commentary, particularly in this last election cycle, where I was public about Steve Simon, who I thought was fundamentally a great guy and a good, the Democrat incumbent for Secretary of State. I endorsed Governor Tim Walz. I also endorsed uh, Ryan Wilson for state auditor, and I also endorsed Jim Schultz. I wrote about, I wrote about all those on my blog, on my website, and explained why. I wasn't doing that necessarily to influence the election. It was because I provide analysis and commentary. Right. And I think because of my past, where people identified me strictly as a Republican, I kind of get put into that kind of that that kind of label. When in fact, um, in the last ten years. I've voted split ticket. Uh, I don't think I've voted for any independents, but I know I have voted for Democrats and Republicans split ticket. And I will say to you, it's generally been a split ticket. I don't know that it's been 50-50 equally. Sometimes it's been more Republicans, sometimes it's been more Democrats, but it's been a split ticket. Now, this is the first election cycle where I've ever was public about it. And again, that was more about analysis. Right. It wasn't Absolutely. necessarily to drive the race. But from my perspective, you can be a Republican because we, what we don't have in this state is we don't have party designation. I don't mm -hmm. have to register as a Republican. Um, I don't have to, you know, there's, I'm not a card, there's no card I'm issued. 
Uh, I don't get, you know, my, <laughs> I don't get my, my Republican credentials taken away if I vote for a Democrat. Uh, and so I think, I think I'm, I think I feel I'm kind of where a lot of Minnesotans are, particularly those in the suburbs, in the sense that we're going to look at candidates, we're going to vote based on candidate quality versus just party label. Yeah, I mean, I think we've seen this quite a bit over the number, you know, we I mentioned, you know, the Emmer campaign in 2010, we saw a lot of that back then of, you know, Governor Mark Dayton won all the constitutional offices, were won by DFL members, Republicans won the House and won the Senate for the first time, I think, in some 30 years. So I, I think you're right. I think that Minnesota voters, you know, do bounce back and forth a little bit. Um, one question I have for you, you did mention, oh um, you know, that you believe that it's a, a two-party that we are a two-party system, Republicans and Democrats. Correct. If the Republican Party continues down this, what you have called the Trump cult before, you know, down this track of, you know, standing behind um, behind the president, you know, kind of turning back, wanting to go against um, abortion, go, go against gay marriage, you know, all of these kind of factors, issues, and, and really build this new platform that they stand for, do you think there is then a space and a need for a different party of maybe former Republicans, maybe a little bit more moderate, right-leaning folks? I think there could be. I just don't think it's viable. I think that, I think that it's, there's, from a, and I think the reason I answered that way is I think you and I both have political experience to understand what it takes to build and grow a party. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not, I'm not trying to be dismissive of the concept. It's just the practical reality that both of you and I know that managing and running a party is a huge investment. And even when you have a very large personality like Jesse Ventura, it's difficult to keep it sustained. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to keep it growing and building when you just have one, when there's just one candidate involved. And so I fundamentally think the best way to reform the party, the Republican Party, is by being still inside the tent and trying to have them and trying to be that voice inside the tent. Um, I think it's a much more effective way than starting a third party because it's just a hurdle. There is such an organizational benefit that both Republicans and Democrats have um, in organizing, and it just would take a very long, sustained effort to build something like that. You know, one question that you asked, Annette, that I want to throw back at you is, do you think this is rock bottom for Republicans? Do you think we're going to learn from this and turn it around in the next two years to hopefully be successful, have better candidate quality, better messaging, and come out successful in 2024, whether it's, you know, talking presidential and all the way down the ticket? I have faith because for the first time in probably in the last four or five cycles, I think Republicans are legitimately being introspective. I think that what occurred on Election Day was such a shock to so many people on the Republican side. I think it was devastating to a lot of people that I think that this is rock bottom. I think that what I've heard, at least in Minnesota, is that there is efforts being made to reframe, restructure, reorganize the way the party operates and outside groups. I think there's a legitimate effort there. I have... By people that know what they're doing? Uh, well, yes, that's a great point. Um, I think that there's questions as to that, as to whether... But I do think that people are... I think we're having a discussion, that Republicans are having a discussion for the first time that is more out in the open than it ever has been before. So from that sense, I have a little bit of faith. But to your point, are the right people there? That's the concern I have. Republican Party just re-elected, just had a leadership election this past weekend. 
Um, they elected, re-elected David Hannes state party chairman. I, I fundamentally think that was a mistake. I think that, you know... To be clear, weren't really any other candidates up. I mean, there, there were none that, that, I mean, ran successful campaigns or challenges. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> sure. That was well-timed. That was super well-timed. Um, yeah, you know. <laughs> wow, that was really, that was really well-timed. So there really wasn't, you know, any, you know, coming from November just to early December to run a campaign that's focused on taking down the chair. Wow. Was largely unsuccessful. But what are, you know, so how, how is this going to change? Who are going to be those people in the room? You know, we're here again, being the armchair quarterbacks, not raising our hand to sign up for, for any of these, these roles. Um, but how are, how are we going to do it? So to our listeners, I want to point out, I apologize for my lack of professionalism there. We've got some new podcast equipment in, and I just real—I just pressed some of the buttons for the first time and realized what they can do. So we heard, and unfortunately, a strategic placed rim shot, I think is what they call it, and then a sad trombone, which I now realize we can do. Which is going to be trouble for me. And I'm just, I'm really smiling right now that we can do that. <laughs> I didn't realize that, so I apologize, and I didn't mean to interrupt your point by doing that. Um, if you could repeat your question, because I was so excited about the I mean, who, the are, who are the adults in the room? Who can we, Us. you know? we're the adults. Okay, but, but we're sitting here talking about it. We're, are, we, are we signing up to be the doers as well? I mean, I, I think that hopefully we do have, you know, I, I do think David Han is a smart person. I think he is a smart guy and hopefully can surround himself by folks who are not necessarily the ones surrounding himself. I mean, you're rolling your eyes. Maybe you disagree with that fact. But I do think he has the ability and wherewithal to, to surround himself with folks who maybe know better and, and can hopefully have those conversations and, and make those changes. I'm rolling my eyes because I don't know which but button I can press to make the right sound. And so I just wanted to do the eye roll and not give you a distraction. Yeah, I think that elect, re-electing David Hanna as party chair after you just lost all statewide constitutional races, you lost the Senate and you didn't pick up the House and you didn't pick up a top congressional seat, in the state, I think is a, is is a is a recipe for a, a repeating of it. I have faith that I think that there are enough people outside of the party, donors, activists, former candidates, who are interested in changing the process. I, I think it's going to be difficult for the party to to, to make the num- the substantive changes that they are. But the fact that Annette Meeks wrote an op-ed and got it published in the Star Tribune mm-hmm. that's that's. Re, that, if, that makes me believe that there's hope. That you believe this, that we're having this discussion today. I think that's where this is going to come from because left to their own kind of devices, I don't think the party is going to change on their own. So I think there needs to be outside pressure. I will say to you that, you know, based on my experience over the last year, I think we can be incredibly effective in framing that, that up. I mean, we're going to have listeners to our podcast. We're going to have discussions with people. The questions that I got that we and our kind of show prep to this week, can you can a, can you be a Republican and vote for a Democrat? Came from some of the feedback I've gotten on social media. I think there's a real kind of tribalism that exists with Republicans right now that they are not interested in. Um, they're just very much, if you're not wearing our jersey all the time, you can't call yourself a Republican. And I think it's is something, that where you get called the Rhino? That is where I get called the Rhino. But I think, and I think that that's, to be honest, it's, it's, I don't think it's an accurate impression. I don't think it's an accurate statement, um, not based on my past work, current work, mm-hmm. and what I've written and what I've discussed about. 
I as I've said to you before that I view my relationship with the Republican Party very much like my relationship with the Minnesota Vikings. Uh, it, it, is, it is a challenge. Uh, it is emotionally up and down. Uh, I so we need a Kevin McConnell. We, you are exactly right. We need a Kevin. We, we do need a coach, just like the, the Vikings coach. And we need that. And so if I didn't care, I wouldn't complain, which I don't know if you necessarily... I hope I'm. I hope I'm explaining myself so yeah, you, no, from my I, perspective, where, where where the kind of my criticism analysis comes from. I I you know again one other episode where I'm agreeing with Michael this far too much, um, but I agree. I, you know I don't think we're here just to tear down Republicans and the endorsement process and candidates as a whole, but to hopefully spur some conversation and and some change to make a difference and and whether that's um you know again heated by any of the folks the activists anybody listening um i would like to think so if you're an activist again i came up in the party i think that there's a great efforts that you guys do let's hope the delegates can maybe look at what it actually takes to win in november instead of just you know having their guy or gal win in may absolutely um this has been a great discussion this week i think this new podcast scenario equipment where we're doing this is gonna work out great absolutely i feel pretty badass badass uh i need to do something i hate to do um i despise doing but i want to i have to issue a little bit of a clarification on something so on last week's episode um i uh discussed that that the last time uh republican had won particularly a candidate for governor an endorsed republican candidate won uh had been al my answer was technically accurate that it's been since Alcuy, but I wanted to point out to the listeners that Arnie Carlson, because I got some feedback about that, that Arnie Carlson um, was the Republican candidate, which I knew, but he had not been endorsed. And so we, there has been a Republican that has been, that has won with over 50% of the vote since Alcuy. My point was to explain, was to connect it to the party process because Arnie Carlson was not endorsed in 90 or 94. And in 94, he got a huge margin of the vote. And he was the he, to this day. I still think his I think his winning percentage is the highest amount that a Republican has gotten um, since that time. But he was not endorsed by the party. The other clarification I needed to make was that um, when I made reference to the Democrats taking control of the governor's office, the House, and the Senate, my reference to that was newly elected. There was a time in 2012 where the, there was a DFL governor. Uh, and they controlled the House and the Senate. I was speaking about on Election Day. So just to make those two, I would call them clarifications. I wouldn't call them corrections. Nice and honest and humble there. Well, that's it, uh, I think, for this show. I feel like if Todd was here, he'd be giving us the wrap-it-up signal. And we uh, hope to have him in studio next week. Right? Right. So I want to thank everyone for listening. Where can people give you comments at? Uh, On Twitter, at AlleryRL. It's A-L-E-R-Y-R-L. Give us your comments, criticism, support, and ideas. And I'm at Adam Broadcorp on Twitter, also at michaelbroadcorp.com if you have any questions. We look forward to having Todd back next week uh, on the latest edition of the Broadcorp Report. We want to thank you all for this. Have a great day.